You better listen, my brother, cause if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land, and they're willing to we all come to understand. None of us are free, none of us are free. Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network's Wednesday live stream. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab. We focus on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And my co-host tonight is Patrick Dixon. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. Pleased to be joining you, Evan, from about half an inch of snow in Arlington, Virginia. I'm one of the producers of the Labor History Today podcast, and I'm excited about our lineup of guests this evening. I'm going to be speaking to Tim Sheard about the Pandemic Nurses Diary, an exciting new publication from Hardball Press. We are going to go into our music for the middle half, which is a labor song from the pandemics related to our next guest. And let me just uh, put that on right now. Close your eyes Time to sleep now You have someone To call to The pain is gone It will keep now For a patient And nurse to care for you The war is still
and that was Lullaby by the Pandemics. And we're lucky now to be joined by Tim Sheard, the, the writer of that song and the editor of the Pandemic Nurses Diary, an exciting new publication from Hardball Press. Can, can you show us a copy of the Pandemic There we go. Pleased to, pleased to have you joining us, Tim. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Patrick. Now, I was lucky enough to read the, uh, the Pandemic Nurses Diary recently, and it includes a lot of, uh, in some cases, quite harrowing stories from the early stages of the pandemic, where we just see really quite haphazard conditions in many cases. And I know you were a nurse for 40 years. Uh, did these stories surprise you when, when people started reaching out to you? And can you tell us a bit about how this, how this publication came to be? Yeah, these stories were quite shocking. I have been worked in intensive cares for 40 years. I'd never been in war and the nurses and other healthcare workers were facing battlefield conditions in the spring in New York City. There were literally bodies piling up in temporary morgues outside the hospital and tents. So it was quite shocking for me, but it was even more shocking to the workers because they had to go in every day back into this battlefield and it was uh, quite traumatic for them. And how, how did you go about, can you tell us a bit about the, the process? How did you go about assembling this, this, this diverse collection of, of stories from uh, nursing professionals? Sure. Well, I've been in contact with a number of friends in various hospitals around New York City, and one nurse in particular, Nurse T, who is fond of my writing, uh, sent me some text messages about how, how difficult it was, what she was facing, all the codes, three patients dying on one shift. She'd never seen that before. And she wrote to me and she wrote, OMG, Tim, when this is all over, you've got to write a book about it. And I said, no, Nurse T, you've got to write the book. So I used my experience as a mentor to writers uh, because I've been a mentor through the National Writers Union for decades. And I helped her develop her voice, flesh out her diary entries, and then format them into a, into a real readable book. You okay there? And I've read many, I've read, you know, many of, many of these stories. I'm sure a lot of people have, have seen nurses and doctors interviewed on CNN and in the newspapers and everywhere else, but can you give people a bit of a taste of how, how is it different when, uh, when, when workers are not subject to, you know, the editors at AOL Time Warner or whoever else? What makes sure, well, it really different? Of course, during, during the pandemic, uh, there were a number of interviews in the mainstream press. You read them in the New York Times and the Guardian. And they were, for the most part, heartfelt. You know, they certainly were honest, but they, the staff really were not able to express uh, some of the depths of the anxiety, the dangers that they faced, the horrific conditions, and also some of the, uh, some of the failings of our healthcare system because uh, healthcare you know, is not financed uh, the way it should be. In other words, the, when it comes to spending the money from the taxes that are collected, uh, healthcare often comes less, especially communities of color and poor communities. And so they really were not prepared for, for this avalanche of patients. They didn't have the resources, they didn't have the supplies, and this was not reported uh, really fully in the mainstream press. And so 
I felt strongly that through Nurse T, we could get this message out to the public. And many of these, uh, many of these professionals describe their patients, describe their daily routines. I mean, in some cases, they describe the uh, the, the trash bags that they have to punch holes in to put over uh, over themselves to protect themselves. They don't describe themselves as superheroes, and this is a, a rhetoric that's taken on. I drive past GW Hospital sometimes, George Washington University Hospital, and there's a lot. There's a must be a 40-foot sign on the wall that says something along the lines of superheroes work here. And there's a picture of a, a nurse. It may be a nurse. It may be a doctor wearing a cape. Has this, has this rhetoric served nurses well being described in this way? I think it's, I don't think it's, it's fair. I mean, it's true that they're heroic, but really what the staff are doing, and they'll tell you, they're just doing their job. They're doing the job they've been doing their whole life. Um, and what's, you know, what's uh, terrible about it and difficult about it is they're not given the resources that they need to really do their job well. So yes, they're courageous, but when you talk to a nurse, talk to a doctor, they're just doing their job. Uh, to, they don't feel like they don't feel like they're superheroes. Let's put it that way. Mm. I, I know, Evan, you've got a, a question and we've also got a, a clip that you've helped prepare for us. If you don't mind doing that, uh, good to see you again. And uh, Tim and I collaborated a little bit on some of the essays that create some audio essays. And so I'm just going to pull a short clip from one of the essays that is focusing. It, it's called the ICU. And um, a friend of mine uh, got me in touch with a nurse from Riverside in California who was able to read uh, the essay. And so she also was um, profoundly affected by these essays. And this is her voice, Kim Hoyer from Riverside. So this is a very short clip. With our fearless nurses A Lily helping I settle the patient into bed, adjust the intravenous infusion and tie his wrist to the bed frame to keep him from pulling out his breathing tube. Finally, I look for the first time into the man's face. It is a handsome face. It is a face that once laughed and smiled and winked at his children. I know he will laugh no more. The cold ones always code. They always die. So obviously it's, it's pretty powerful to, I mean, the, the healthcare workers are constantly, you know, at the, the front lines of, of helping people on, on the verge of passing. Um, I guess looking at this book, uh, Tim, I, I really appreciate the fact that culture influences policy and politics as much as anything, art and literature. And so how can we help in promoting this book, obviously we're here talking about it now. But I guess going forward um, in the you know the coming months and years, how how can we get more focus of labor in our entertainment and in our culture and those type of things? Well, it would be wonderful if more of the major labor unions, local and national, promoted labor arts because the labor arts give voice to labor's message and labor's needs, and not only our message but also our integrity our value, our worth, and that comes through labor arts, whether it's uh, poetry, song, music, painting. And if, if the unions would promote them, for example, they all have monthly newsletters. 
And if their editors were allowed to write about labor arts and what's coming out and give it to their members, then their members could participate and enjoy this art and it would help spread the word. And it's a great challenge just getting my book reviewed in the nursing unions. It's a huge challenge. And I don't know quite why it's difficult, but many of them resist um, writing about and reviewing or supporting labor arts. So as much as we can promote that, from the AFL down to the locals, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, we have to create our own our own entertainment, our own production, our own publishing houses. So it's it's some great work you're doing with Hardball Press. Thank you. We also have Kayla Blado from the National uh, from sorry I'm sorry from the Nonprofit Employees Union on the line. Kayla, what what do you think about what you've been hearing? Um, the, the audio you played and Tim's book, it's just so powerful. Um, it makes me so sad and then it makes me so mad. Like none of this needed to happen. I mean, um, uh, my organization EPI where I work, um, we talked about, you know, Trump could have used the De Defense Authorization, Authorization Act um, or Defense Production Authorization Act to help, you know, manufacture better PPE for healthcare workers. Um, it's just, you know, I agree with Tim saying, you know, calling them superheroes, I think almost kind of skirts the issue that they're humans. I mean, would you want to be working in this environment? Would, would you want your family to, or friends to be working in this environment? I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrific that we expect so much from workers um, and I think, you know, Tim talking about labor arts, I think is, is really important. Um, I think I, yeah, I, I guess I hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about that recently. It just seems like, you know, such an urgent crisis that there isn't any time for art or music or reflection or anything, but that that's probably one of the most important ways to get through such a crisis. So I'm really looking forward to reading your book and um, getting more engaged in the labor arts space. Thank you, Kayla. And you know, these songs I've written, I wrote these songs for my beloved uh, co-workers. And through the spring, I, I said to them on the phone and uh, over and again, I've, I've never been more proud to be a nurse and I've never loved my co-workers so much. And I think it's important, you know, in New York at 7 p.m., we would, people would hang out the windows and applaud and bang pots. Uh, to thank the essential workers, all the essential workers, you know, the people in uh, transit and in, and in the food service. Um, and the more that you can do through your union and, the, and through all of us through our unions to, to affirm the value of these workers, then the more they're going to be able to negotiate for their power because they have to, you know, convince the public that they're worth their contract. I also like, uh, I did get this book, uh, The Man Who Fell From the Sky, and uh, it's a Bill Fletcher Jr. Uh, we, have, we had him on the live stream on the, uh, around election uh, week, and uh, you're also uh, doing fiction. So could you talk a little bit about uh, the fiction that you've written with the Lenny Moss series? Yeah, thank you. So also a writer yourself, not just a publisher and nurse. So thank you. So I have nine mystery novels in a series, a crime series, and it's set in a fictional hospital, of course, since that's where I work. 
and the, the amateur sleuth, the detective, is a hospital custodian and a union shop steward, a very militant union shop steward. And the way the story goes, which is typical in crime stories, is that an innocent person is arrested for a murder. In this case, a hospital worker, probably a black worker. And so his friends go to their best steward, who's always getting them out of trouble, even when the trouble is like with their wife, not with the boss. And he says, you got to get him out of jail. And he says, what am I going to do? He says, you've got to find the killer. And so he becomes a detective. And the nice thing about it is that it's an enjoyable story, but in the course of the story, uh, as a shop steward, he always engages with the bosses on some, uh, some, some uh, conflict, you know, some issue, some labor issue, whether it's worker safety or overwork or, or negotiating uh, uh, unfair firing. And so through the course of reading you know, an enjoyable novel, you learn about what unions do and how they advocate for their workers. And, and I like how you got, you started part of, you got into publishing because you published this with another per, another organization and it went out of print. So you, you just took it into your own hands, which is great. Well, that's what we do when we're organizers, right? We're organizing and if one, if one campaign fails and we try another tactic we hit it you hit a brick wall you go over it you go under it you know you don't give up what one of the uh what one of the things we mentioned earlier when we were talking to caleb was uh the level of burnout among uh, non-profit union employees uh i understand i mean i, I recall at the end of uh uh the pandemic nurses diary you have a, a section on meditations can you tell us a bit about that tim sure well, meditation is, is one way uh, to try and uh, work through your feelings of anger or sadness, your sense of isolation. And through the meditation, the, the exercises, uh, you imagine a scenario where you can get past it. For example, uh, when, when a beloved patient dies, you imagine speaking at the funeral, which you can't do because of COVID, but you imagine speaking to the family and embracing the family and hugging the family. And in that thought process and that meditation it helps you work through the grief at the loss of so many you know your so many patients so there are these meditations that help you get through many of these difficult feelings of guilt even uh, for surviving when your co-workers died um, and they're writing exercises where you can write out your thoughts and your feelings you can write a letter to a beloved patient you can write a letter uh, to a family member you can write a letter to a co-worker who's died and all these ways are, are helping you to, to get past that trauma that you, so many have experienced. It's, it's not the brass tax of, sort of dollars and cents, but is there a way that the union can, uh, can be a part of this, this recovery on the part of workers? Sure. Well, you know, I'm not much of a, I'm not much of a, I'm not a very good capitalist, Patrick. So I tend to discount my books pretty heavily when unions buy them. So if a union wants to buy copies to give to their members, um, I discount it way down. So uh, it's really, my goal is to get as many books out to workers as I can. And so if dropping the price means more people get to read it, then, then I'm certainly happy to do it. They can, they can call me up, they can email me to Hardball Press, and I'm happy to cut them a very, very good deal. So you also have uh, children's stories that you've written about. And uh, could you talk a little bit about some of those projects? Sure. Well, um, when we teach children with story, uh, it's important sometimes to teach them about 
labor and about social justice, which we see more and more. We've seen more Black Lives Matter stories for children, um, uh, gender rights for children. And so I have labor and social justice rights for children. They're all in English and Spanish, so they're bilingual. So they, they, they reach a wide community. And I have a enchanting Christmas story called Good Guy Jake, which is uh, based on a true story. A sanitation worker in New York City was fired because he was taking toys out of the trash. And he took the toys home and he repaired them and painted them and he gave them to children at a local shelter at Christmas time. And it's against city regs. So we wrote a story where the union files for arbitration. And even though it's a losing case, they win it because the children come with their toys and they testify on behalf of the worker that Jake, the sanitation worker taught them to believe in Christmas. So this is a way to teach young children about how unions advocate for workers and what real justice is about. Um, and again, if unions want to get these books for their, for their members, they're very, very inexpensive if, if they want to, you know, buy, you know, get them in bulk. Good guy, Jake. We need to get that book in uh, national curriculum for all elementary schools, you know, indoctrinate them early. Teach them early. Yes, that's a better word. Absolutely. Uh, sorry, uh, Kayla. Many of your many of your members might not have necessarily experienced quite the same sort of frontline strains as as the nurses that Tim refers to, but. Um, is there some, I don't know, do you feel that, is there some sort of meditative process for, uh, for, for many white collar workers who are working from home to sort of transitioning to whatever happens next? Yeah, um, I think that that would be really helpful. We're all facing really stressful environments right now. Um, I think, you know, any type of meditation and then, you know, kind of like a, working that into the self-care narrative, um, but doing it for a reason to kind of create strength and stability so that you can continue doing your job um, and continue with supporting other workers and, and your own union, I think is really important. Um, I also think that, you know, when Tim is talking about these workers and these like horrific environments, it, um, I think nonprofit workers feel, you know, really fortunate that we, um, don't have, you know, that we're not being worn down day in and day out by these horrible work environments of being in a hospital during COVID. But um, I think, you know, we're always looking for opportunities to um, show solidarity and support for essential workers. And, um, you know, and we might have different capacity or different talents that we could share that might be beneficial. So um, if, if anyone listening um, wants to reach out, we're definitely open to working together on any sort of um, essential worker initiatives that could help strengthen unions right now. Uh, Chris Garlock is uh, weighing in and uh, just wanted to kind of wonder, Tim, about why art is important to this movement. Uh, that's a lovely question, uh, lovely question. There's, um, there's a very smart professor uh, Chicago, uh, Northeastern University in Chicago, Tim Libretti, who teaches uh, literature. And he says that the story, the novel, the short story, the poem even, the story is an imaginary way to solve a real social problem. That we solve our problems 
whether it's finding love, finding a job, finding justice. Uh, we, we, we work out these problems through fiction and they teach us how to deal with social problems. And art is this, in this central from, from the earliest preliterate days when people told stories, when the, when the storyteller was cherished for the ability to, you know, educate and enrapture an audience, stories are so important for, for informing and educating and inspiring uh, about social justice issues and how we can address them, how we can solve them, how we can conquer them. So the arts are really so important and uh, they just, they deserve much more, obviously, support from, from all the institutions. How do you write fiction when real life is so crazy right now? It's true. It's hard to write fiction. So it's curious, um, at my age, 72, I've made the transition apparently from writing novels to writing melody and, and song lyrics. Um, and it is a different kind of writing, but it, it's, um, it's just another way of telling a story and touching people's heart because a good story, you want a good story to move someone. You want it to make them laugh or cry. Um, you want them to feel something and songs do the same, do the similar thing. So it's all, it's all of a piece. And where does it come from? Nobody knows, nobody knows, but this creative spirit, it just bubbles up out of some mysterious place in our soul. And uh, many people during this COVID, when they're shut in, have discovered creative abilities they didn't know they had. It's been one of the, you know, few positive things that's come out of it. Have you got any hints, Kayla? Is anything that you've discovered that has? Yeah. Uh, yeah of oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kayla. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, I think it. You know, it resonates that it's kind of something in you that drives you to to pursue arts. And I think uh, it's a similar kind of drive that that causes our members to pursue types of social justice initiatives. And um, I think probably what drives a lot of us to be in labor as well, it's some type of connection to other people and expression of um, our own power and that we don't normally get an opportunity to do in kind of day-to-day -day life. And you have an, and you've been taking music lessons as well, Tim. Yes, music. Yeah, I've been taking guitar lessons uh, from a fellow in New Orleans, and he's such a gifted teacher that he's just opened up the whole world of melody, and syncopation and rhyme, which I didn't know was there. But he 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 unlocked he unlocked this box, and it's it's just been bubbling up. I've been I started a new song today about what is the what is the what is a good life? What is a good life all about? Is it about all about me or is it about us? Is it about giving or is it about taking? And the songs, they just write themselves. If I just let, let them flow, it's just extraordinary. And the, the process was really interesting on how you put this album together, the pandemics during, during COVID. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that process? Sure, well, with the COVID restrictions and the social distancing, uh, to form a band, we could never actually play together as a group. It was just too dangerous. So um, I would bring in a, a singer, play the acoustic guitar and lay down one vocal track and then bring in another singer, or I might have two vocalists and one would sit by the open window, masked. And then when the singer would unmask, you know, sing the song and then mask back on. And then I'd take my, my laptop and my microphone and I'd take it to the bass player six blocks away and he'd lay down the bass track 
uh, and then I'd take all the tracks to the to the drummer, and he'd go to his studio, and he'd lay down the drum tracks. And some uh, some musicians they, they had to email it through the cloud, where I'd send them the song, and they'd lay down violin tracks or slide guitar tracks, and they'd send me those tracks, and then I'd integrate them all through GarageBand. And so we have a virtual band that's never actually played together and we won't be able to play together until, until we're vaccinated, but we still managed to put together a, a heck of a good album. So we have about one minute left until we get to our two minute, two minutes in labor history. So I guess, could you talk um, how people can find your, your books and uh, how people can support uh, labor writers and uh, labor music? Sure. If they go to hardballpress.com, throw in the hardball, right on the home page, they'll see a link to the pandemic nurse's diary. They'll see a link to the music and all the music is on my page. It's all free to listen to. And then there are lots of books, uh, stories, and also organizing tools. I have some really powerful tools for organizing unions and for building union solidarity for internal organizing as well. Uh, I call them power tools for labor. So if you go to Hardwell Press, you'll find some great resources. And again, steep discounts because I'm not in this for the money. You better listen, my brother, because if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land, and they will until we all come to understand. None of us are free, none of us are free. 